Please note, for maximum picture quality, it may be necessary to adjust the tracking control on your VCR. Strangely enough, he wasn't particularly angry. Anger is an emotion, and for emotion you need glands. And Def didn't have much truck with glands, and needed a good run at it to get angry. But he was mildly annoyed. He sighed again. People were always trying this sort of thing. On the other hand, it was quite more interesting to watch. And at least this was a bit more original than the usual symbolic chess game, which Death always dreaded, because he could never remember how the knight was supposed to move. You're only putting off the inevitable, he said. Yes, but that's what being alive is all about. Hey, it's a Terry Pratchett quote. <laughs> <laughs> I've never read any Terry Pratchett. I know you've told me to read, um, is it Bad Omens, the one they've just released as a... Good just, Omens. Good Omens, there you go. That shows yeah. how much I know. Yeah, Good Omens is very, very good. Yeah, because they just did an Amazon show of it. Well, not just, like, three years ago. I tried to watch the Amazon show, but, like, it's got that weird... I don't know if it's Pratchett himself that I just... I don't vibe, or if his work doesn't translate as a live action, but for me, it just kind of comes across that weird kind of... I don't know, not twee, but weird, that that British humour that I don't kind of gel with. I don't know. Like, right, I get you. I, I think I think Good Romans, it worked kind of well. Um, but when the other ad- adaptations of Discworld they've done, they've gone full in on this kind of weird, twee, Britishy kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, n- like large elbows kind of humour. And yeah. um, it it is kind of what Pratchett writes, but it, it's missing the point. In the presentation of it, that's not how it's presented in the in the kind of novels, really. And uh, I think they always miss a beat with it when they don't take the source material seriously enough. They're just kind of going for like the back row comedy, and I think that really fails to kind of hit what makes Discworld really work because he took it seriously when he wrote it, you know. Mm. Anyway, that's death. That's my favourite portrayal of death in any media and it made me think of that quote immediately while watching this film and this is adjust your tracking we're a podcast we're an adventure to watch a century cinema decade by decade year by year and i'm one half your hosts liam and with me you've already heard him the fantabulous (laughs) hello i'm ollie oh god I'm trying to build up the, the... I'm kind of build up the kind of energy here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you come in with this solid material. Energy. Woo! <laughs> so come on, it's seven seal. <laughs> what more energy do you need? I know, I watched it at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. It, it got me pumped. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I watched it uh, Thursday night. It was around 11 when I put it on. That that's seems a good. To be that's the, a good time to put it on. A yeah, movie. that's the that's the proper time. I wasn't that interrupted though. I had to pause it halfway through, so I kind of want to watch it again, really. But um, but the good thing about it is as well, it moves along at a clip. It's not. It's not a slow film. It's not. No. Funny. I mean, you know, it's, it's, that's what's yeah, weird about it. Yeah, we'll we'll get into it in a bit. Yeah, it's sure. Not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd just like to go flat on end, but no, we'll pull back. <laughs> and what have you been up to, Ollie? What have you been uh, doing? I've been working on a corporate video this week. Super fun. It's like oh, great. You do the fun music videos and then you have to, to, to actually earn money you have to do the corporate <laughs> videos which is always a pain in the ass but oh well. Can you it's, can it's you say what you're selling? Uh it's just for working for a school, a local school. Oh, okay. Okay. So I think you know it's just a you know come to our school uh it's great. 
kind of video but because yeah, there's yeah. no because there's no students in the school and it's just empty classrooms i'm filming so it's it's really weird that's really odd so they still actually want you to film the school yeah so i've been going around the school just filming the empty classrooms and then they've like voiceovers of the teachers and stuff like that i find that i do find that weird actually yeah oh well that's what they want <laughs> <laughs> have you been watching anything in between that uh yeah i've watched quite a few things actually um so a few rewatches. So um, I told you my story about when I tried to buy American movie, and I ended up buying a flipping <laughs> the poster. <laughs> I ended up buying an A4 printout on someone's fucking bubble jet inkjet computer, which I could have done myself. <laughs> I thought I was buying the DVD, but I bought a fucking printout, which is now on my pin board because I thought, well, I've spent five quid on it. I thought I'd rewatch that. I've seen it loads of times. It's just, it, for me, it's it's up there in one of my favourite films of all time. Not just all-time documentaries, but films. I think it's oh, yeah, yeah. such a wonderful film. I mean, I think there's rumours that some of it have been a bit, it's a bit staged or a bit guided, but I think a lot of documentaries I think all documentaries that good, are. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think once frankly, you put a camera in front of somebody, they're going to change it yeah. some some way, aren't they? So yeah, I think it's it's part of the medium almost. Yeah. Like it's just how that gets presented is the kind of trick. So really. like, what was the what was catfish was criticised for that, wasn't it? Like they it was. only started like they started filming that halfway through the story, so they kind of recreated stuff. I think as if like, yeah, they went back and recreated stuff, and I think like they clearly chose to do reaction shots and he chose to do a few kind of recreations mm. of scenes just to get them in but it's still a documentary that's the choice of documentary filmmaking you know it doesn't have yeah. to everything not everything has to be fucking um god whatever the uh, it's gone out of my head the documentary art art movement um like man with the man with the russian film man with the oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah not everything not every documentary is that um it's still choice but uh, if anyone hasn't seen american movie it's about these two kind of i don't know where they live do they live upstate in in america kind of a bit more like they've kind of got that weird fargo-y kind of twang a bit like yeah they're a little midwestern-y kind of yeah they're definitely west coasters are they to be fair it has to be midwest because the film he's trying to make is called midwestern so (laughs) there we go yeah so yeah basically it's about this filmmaker called mark i've forgotten what his surname is but anyway, he's trying to make a, a film called Midwestern. And like all filmmakers, he's like two projects ahead of one he actually hasn't finished. <laughs> so he's currently finishing up one of his short films called... Well, it should be called uh, Coven, but he thinks it sounds too much like Oven, so he calls it Coven. <laughs> That's right, I is, forgot about that. <laughs> it's one of the best bits in the film. And um, <laughs> his best friend is like this um, ex-drug addict. Who's like yeah. on a he's on a program to kind of quit drugs and stuff like that, but he's obviously obsessed with gambling and he keeps winning money, and he's like, I'm not going to tell Mark I've won money on the scratch cards because he's going to want to spend it on beer and put it on the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good. You've got to check it out. Um, it is great if you've ever 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 done any type of filmmaking. Oh, it's so at relatable. All, it's so relatable, especially independent like. Yeah, because he's got the. He's like, we need all these people. Because it's kind of like, I think, obviously, Coven, or Coven, or whatever he calls it, is kind of. <laughs> it's got some satanic kind of 
you know, which kind of stuff going on in it. And uh, he's got people in like big shrouds going around or in his head, he wants hundreds of them kind of in a field with all these kind of like scarecrows and stuff like that. But obviously only like one extra turns up, which is his best friend, Mark. And then he gets his <laughs> mom to wear one of them as well. So he only gets two people. Oh, we've been there. And there's we've another bit there. where he's, he shoves, he's shoving someone's head into a, a cupboard door. But he, he keeps shoving his head into the wrong door, the one door that he hasn't weakened. <laughs> so he's like giving this guy a concussion by slamming his head into the, the wrong door. It's so good. I want to watch it again now. <laughs> um, me of it. And he's got like an uncle who has got quite a bit of money. And he, he does give Mark money, but he's kind of very tight with his money. And rightfully so. It's his money. He can do what he wants with it. But he's very old and he just moans all the time and... Mark just gets him drunk all the time, and to be fair, he does look after him. He washes him and cleans him and looks after him. And stuff. It's a it's a really weird dynamic, but uh, but that film is great. It uh, is what great. Else, what else have I watched? I rewatched Into the Spider Verse. Well, I haven't watched it since I saw it at the cinema with you. Actually, I watched it on my birthday over Zoom with my friends. Oh, did you? Yeah, why was, was why was cr- I not invited to this? I am a friend. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Ollie. Why weren't hurt. you? Invited? I am hurt. You never join any Zoom Zoom parties. You're against them. It's because I'm on Zoom a lot for work, and I can't stand <laughs> it. So annoying. I, I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't. Um, but anyway, rewatch that, and I think it's again like American movie. It might be one of my favourite films. It's yeah, it's, it's just wonderful. perfect. Like that is the perfect the Peter B. Parker character in that, which I assume is meant to yes. be our Peter Parker. Yeah, I think it's... Mm, I don't know, actually. The the one who dies at the start is definitely Tobey Maguire. I don't think though. so. I think he's more Ultimate Spider-Man because he's blonde as well. And uh, uh, I guess. I it's know. just they show the clip from... They show his life and they show like the bit in the Spider-Man 2 with the cafe. Well, they show him dancing, life. but he's wearing... And they the show Spider-Man him dancing suit. like Spider-Man 3, don't they? So Yeah. But... um. Like that character is so good in that film. Like I was laughing at every point in that film. It's brilliant. And then later and on, he's when got a proper emotional journey, like oh yeah, definitely. I, I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older. I don't cry at films, but I'm definitely getting more and more emotional at things now. <laughs> and like everything. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, some moments in that film definitely got to me. Like when he meets Aunt May again. Yeah. Oh, obviously that's his Aunt May has died, but then yeah. her Peter has died. So there's that. Yeah, and of all the Peter Parkers, that's the one that's the most relatable to her. The ones that obviously turn up because one's a pig, yes, (laughs) (laughs) one's a black and white noir character with a fedora, one's a a robot or whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, or a spider inside of a robot. I can't remember. There's the dad's like in the spider that's in the robot. I can't remember. (laughs) It's weird. (laughs) But anyway, that's it's a mech. But yeah, like yeah, that emotional connection really works with that. And just to give him that arc of, like, I'm a sucker for that arc. I think I've said this before. I know two arcs I'm a big sucker for. And one of them is someone down and out just stepping up to do mm-hmm. what they have to do. And I love that in that Spider-Man. And the other one I'm always a sucker for is like uh, a group coming together to do some sort of performance that just works. It has both. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm a big, I'm a big sucker for both of those, and they both of them are in it. I love the fact that all the different multiverses have a different name for, like the Goober or the, I don't know, like the Thingamajig or whatever. You know the, the Thingamajig, thing yeah. <laughs> it's 
good stuff. And like, uh, just purely from an animation standpoint, it's just incredible. Yeah. It looks amazing. Like, looks just, yeah, it looks stunning. stunning. I'm just, I'm worried. Like, if they do another one, how, how they'll go about it? Because it's just because they've perfectly set up miles in the. I think for for film audiences now, so I don't. Mm. So like, I think. Then I do have one problem with Miles, and it's got nothing. Like I think he's a great character. I don't know if he's just a bit overpowered. It's like he has the same powers as Peter Parker, but no, he can also go invisible, and he's got electric powers that they call Venom or something like that, which I don't understand. Right. And I'm just like, do you have to keep adding all these extra stuff on to make him? (laughs) That's a big product of when he was designed really in comics wasn't it i think that's a big part of that so. era of comics when they were trying to add more stuff in and get it more ex- you know and use that kind of gimmicky to get more people excited and to separate him a little bit as well well it's like superman 2 3 or 4 whichever one he can like he just looks at a brick wall and the brick wall kind of <laughs> builds itself back up and i'm like superman <laughs> could do that now okay <laughs> <laughs> i am um, I'm a big believer in because I think uh, the upcoming Suicide Squad will test this, and uh, I'm mean, I'm like excited by it, and also not because mm. um I I believe that for a good superhero you just need basically one power and one name, and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what it is. Like give your superhero the ability to climb a wall, give him the ability to create I don't know platforms, create like physical matter, give him the ability to fly, give him the ability to teleport, just like one simple thing. And just let writers, you know, go wild with that mm-hmm. and how you use that and how you kind of engage that power and how you kind of make, make it different and, and be creative with it. I'm not a big fan of he's got like 75 unrelated different kind of powers. Yeah, that's what I find. Like, it kind of just makes it a bit messier for me. I'd rather it was just, yeah. just simple, like that he just happens to have the same exact same powers as Peter. Yeah, and, yeah, and it's just about it. how he uses it differently to Peter or something. I don't know. I just because I've been playing the the game as well, Miles Morales one. Oh right, cool. And I'm like, why have I? Why am I? Why have I got this stupid overpowered like electric attack? I don't get it. And they call it Venom Power, and I'm like, that's confusing because Venom is also a character in Spider Man. Anyway. <laughs> um, I love how it's obviously based on the fact that some spiders are kind of a yeah, little... they have a Venom. Yeah, yeah, but and I love how it's as related to that as kind of spider senses when mm. spider sense isn't a thing spiders have they just have like <laughs> a lot of hairs on them and a lot of eyes yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> but they like, give some sort of esp i love it i'll just blitz through the last the other three things that we watched so um there's been an ongoing joke with me and caroline ever since we've been together and it's like talking about how big something is so it's always like different sizes and megalodon big is like the biggest big okay so so megalodon became a phrase in our in our like in our life yep. and obviously the meg has been around for a few years the film and i've actively <laughs> tried to avoid watching it but caroline always brings it up now and again going we should watch the meg just for the fun of it i'm like no i don't want to watch it don't watch it <laughs> and we're on netflix and as i was scrolling past i tried to scroll quickly past the meg and she was like oh the meg let's watch the meg and i was like <laughs> Fuck. So we watched the Meg. Um, don't know what to say about the Meg, but it's a film. Um, have you it's seen it? John, John Turtletaub um, Turtle joint, Tom, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Turtletaub. Have you seen no, it? No, I haven't bothered. Honestly, it's it. It feels like a very nineties film. Like 
it's that well, kind of structure. <laughs> it's that director, like yeah, true. Like you know, Disney's the kid and Cool Runnings and National Treasure and you know, it phenomenon he does as well. Three Ninjas, that's another one. What did he career. direct Three Ninjas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it ends like you know, like a French film will say Finn at the end. <laughs> right. It says Finn at the end. <laughs> ah, it's a pun. But yes, yes. <laughs> But yeah, um, yeah. So I've watched that. I wouldn't really recommend it. But at the same time, it wasn't like I was ha- having a fun time enough of how bad it was. Do you know what I mean? But it, yeah, okay. Shark films always whole, have a little bit of kind of fun to it. I could have lived my whole life never seeing it though, and been happy to never have seen it though. So sure, it's not really a screaming endorsement for the film. Are you a Statham fan? No, I mean to be honest, I've. I've probably I don't think I've seen many films with him in. I I like well, I think I like them. I probably don't if I've rewatched them. I liked right. Lockstock and Snatch when I was younger. Yeah, I've tried to go back to them and I just don't like them. But I have not seen them. It's got um Stephen Graham's in Snatch, I think though, and I like him a lot as an actor. I think yeah. he works mostly a lot on TV though, and so you know, he's in Line of Duty and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, I really like I really like the um, Spy. That he did with um oh with the, the ghostbusters the actress I forget her name all the time. Melissa McCarthy <laughs> thank you yeah that's I think that's probably her best of those like big Hollywood comedies and he's really funny in it as well like it's really w- weird though thinking back to Lock Stock and Snatch I never thought watching him in those films oh he's going to be an action star sure sure you know what I mean like he's like he's a bit of a Bruce Willis in that you look at like Die Hard like his earlier stuff before Die Hard you think I mean, he's not an action guy is he yes yeah he's, he's like a little up. romantic lead well everyone everyone learnt the wrong lesson from Lockstockers match because everyone looked at Vinnie Jones like he was going to be the next like big thing and the <laughs> hey, guy can't act like, he's the juggernaut bitch oh fuck <laughs> he's so annoying <laughs> And like they kept on giving him all the roles, and silently Jason Statham comes up behind doing all these much more interesting action films. Frankly, like like Crank. Is... I, I was going to say I lo- I do love the two Crank films. They're so yeah. bizarre. And like, like there's another one he did as well, which is kind of like that. I can't remember. Well, he had the Transporter trilogy, didn't he? Yeah, um, I know he's obviously he's now in Fast and Furious, but he was in um he did that Parker, you know the Parker books. Oh, he did, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Which I can't even remember if that's good or not. I can't, I've, I've seen it and literally couldn't tell you. I think I thought I mean, it was fine, but I don't know. <laughs> I've only read the Darwin Cook books. And yeah, I've looking at those, Cook I can't ones, yeah. see Jason Statham in those. No. It doesn't... <laughs> in the, at all. <laughs> but it's almost like how uh, Darwin Cook did the spirit, and that's very much almost like an Eisner-style spirit, wasn't it? Like yeah. a classical spirit. Yeah, classic And then you have the Frank Miller... Oh, fuck Bizarre. it just absolutely fuck it yeah yeah it's kind of like that kind of thing going on again <laughs> it is um, and the, i mean he was in the italian job as well which loads of people love but i've never watched that remake but people really do love that remake so apparently they're doing a tv yeah. series of it aren't they are they oh, on okay. you know uh paramount plus or whatever it's going to be called oh yeah everything's getting a reboot on paramount plus at the moment Aye. everything beavers like... and butthead's getting a new movie though so that's good there we go that's another one <laughs> i'm excited for that though Hopefully. i like mike judge a lot so and i think yeah yeah he he genuinely puts out good stuff Gen- yeah it's just i think i don't think beavers and butthead works outside of like gen x 
in that time period. I know that I the new series did exist and there were a couple of funny ones, but it's not an it's not the current teenagers, Beavis and Butthead, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I don't think that's what they were trying to I don't even know if they were trying to be that back in the nineties though. I don't I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully it's funny. <laughs> we'll see. But um what else have I watched? Uh, <laughs> we watched Caroline was on BBC iPlayer and she saw Sliding Doors on there and it's one of her favourite films. I've never seen it before. Oh, Sliding uh, Doors is good. And I actually quite enjoyed it. It's like a yeah. nice little rom-com with a little bit of a sci-fi kind of twist. It's one of those films that became a trope, which I always love. Oh, yeah, like, like X-Files you can just, an episode based on yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You can just say a Sliding Doors episode or even people yeah. use it in their own life. You know, that was a Sliding Doors moment for me mm. kind of thing. I just kind of like that, that they managed to nail that kind of feeling. I pretty much predicted the whole film as we were going along there and Caroline was getting annoyed and she's like, just watch it, just watch it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, shut up, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, annoyed for, I'm annoyed for her. I know. but I mean, she'd seen it loads, so it was all right. <laughs> um, and then the last film I watched that I, I can't speak highly enough and I probably shouldn't speak about it because I don't actually think it's out yet. So I won't talk about it. Well, you got I a screener, it. obviously. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got a screener, yeah. From the BFI. Um, I, <laughs> or, no, it's not the BFI, whatever they're called. BAFTAs. Because you're not on the panel. <laughs> I uh, I watched The Sound of Metal. Which, cool. Um, like I spoke about Soul. I didn't realise Soul was quite divisive, actually. I didn't realise that it was, um, there was some controversy about Soul. Yeah, there is. I get it. That's, I'm a bit mixed on Soul. That's why I didn't really... Yeah, I was just listening to your opinion on it more than anything else last well, time. Well, I mean, I get it. Like, his emotional growth happens because a white person embodies him. Like, if you see what I mean? I don't think it's necessarily a white person, because if you listen... I know, it's uh, just because the voice. It's because it's Tina Fey. Yeah, but the character does, like, do different voices, like, saying, I can be whatever I want, really. But she does say that I've chosen this middle-aged white woman's voice because it annoys people the most, like... Yeah, I guess so. I think that's what... I actually haven't read the controversy, so I don't know if it's actually more than that, but, like... Well, I never really thought of that as a gender or a do you know what I mean I don't know yeah so, I know what you mean but, but, but again I'm not the person who would feel offended by that so yeah exactly I mean? so, yeah. I, so I can't really speak so I so uh, maybe if I watch it again I might be able to like so, with bit. the mind to that you might be able to yeah, catch exactly. some stuff why yeah, yeah. it would yeah I think that's fair um, but anyway um, so yeah Sound of Metal I was, t- I was saying like Soul spoke to me and uh something else spoke to me that I watched I can't remember what it was but um, Sound of Metal really 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 spoke to me because it's about a character who's experiencing hearing loss well he literally loses his hearing in the film and for those of the people who don't who all two of you that listen to this show which is probably (laughs) Natalie and Brandon so you know anyway (laughs) but um, I have experienced hearing loss and I've lost 50% of my hearing in one of my ears and a percentage in my right ear not through like in this film he's like a heavy metal drummer so I don't know if his is related to that they don't, they don't really go into the I'm not spoiling it but they don't go into the film like how he loses hearing but it doesn't assume. matter yeah. Yeah. Um, but like uh, mine was through a, I've got like a defect in my ears from birth that was never really known about until I was 16 like you know I just had lots of ear aches and stuff and they're like oh you'll be right just take some paracetamol you'll be fine mm. put hot water bottles next year but then it turns out I actually had like a, a defect in my ear that kind of caused like 
growths. I don't want to say tumors, but like growths that kind of expand in your ear and that you know in third world countries it can lead to death because it just grows so big that it causes an oh, wow. in your brain and you die. There's like yeah, yeah. There's charities for it and stuff like that because you know it's not a very common thing at all, but like it does happen. True. Um, and you know my my left ear, which is my most, I've had four surgeries on that one. I've had two on my right, but on my right ear, uh, my left ear, like uh, when I was sixteen, I was first diagnosed. You know, like the NHS is great. Don't get me wrong, but they said like, uh, you know, if if you want to have a, you know, you need surgery on this, but we won't be able to see you until January, and this was July of the previous year, and so. Uh, he said, by that time, you will have lost all your hearing in that ear, though. There's nothing else we can do about that. And oh, my dad, yeah. you know, we, we're not a very affluent family, but my dad always believed in having private health insurance. So he'd always, he's always sorted that out. And my dad said, well, we're private. And he goes, okay, how about Monday then? Oh, so, so, like, look, though, thankfully, you know, my dad having that foresight to kind of making sure we had health insurance. Yeah. I was able to have my, you know salvage what hearing we could on my in my ear so if yeah. you ever hear me sniffing by the way on this podcast which i try to edit out it's because my ears keep <laughs> popping all the time because of it and i have to keep leveling out my ears it's a right pain yeah. in the ass. but um so anyway in this film going back to the film not about me uh <laughs> there's a moment where he his hearing goes muffled all of a sudden and he can't hear anything and it just starts to ring and all he can hear is like Imagine if you're vacuuming, you've got the telly on in the background, you can just hear the muffling of the TV. Yeah. That's what it kind of yeah. sounds like. And I remember when my hearing first went, when I was sitting in the common room, and it just went like that, and it, that triggered me, and that set me off. Like that, like I said, I don't cry. I cried <laughs> that. Yeah. And, I can um, imagine. But, but the film is, is, is it's a basically about a person coming to terms with being deaf, and he's also a, a recovering addict. So it's a very niche thing that he goes to a rehabilitation place where it's also for deaf people. Okay. And and it's just about him accepting that he's going to be deaf and being okay with that. Which is something that's always scared me like all like it frightens me to death all the time. Yeah. Uh, and you know and it was it was nice to see that it's it's not that's it's not as scary as it seems, you know, there's Yeah. Yeah. You know, anyway, but like his dedicate Riz Ahmed is amazing in that film. His dedication yeah. to making that film is amazing. Like for eight months, he like learned how to play the drums and learn sign language. Wow! And wow. Um, like when I used to work at uh, this video, uh, I used to work at game like a video game shop, and there was this customer that would come in all the time who was deaf, and that I'd communicate to him by writing. Okay. But my friend Joe, who has experienced no hearing loss, no sign language, and used to talk to him, and I was like thinking. Fucking hell. That's like, cool. Oh, that should be me. I should, have been, I should be the one that knows the sign yeah. language. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it's it's always been in my back of my mind that is, that is something I'd like to learn. Yeah. I learned how it. to say face from the film though, so I know how to do that. It's pretty easy. <laughs> Just put the palm of your hand over your face. <laughs> I always think sign language is really cool. Um, Riz Ahmed, I think he's one of the best British actors working. And I can't wait to see what more he does. He needs more recognition and hopefully he gets award stuff from this because he's yeah. overdue. Like, he's been an absolute force in everything he's done, basically. And um, I'm really... Can't, I love the fact that he's, like, got lead of this film. Well, I, I believe he produced it, I think. Cool. 
So yeah, I highly recommend that. I will definitely check it out. I've been waiting for it to appear on Amazon. I don't know why it hasn't yet because people have been talking about this film for ages. So I don't know what they're waiting for. I guess I'm guessing it's something to do with the Oscars being moved back that they're mm-hmm. waiting to drop it when that kind of I don't know the road to nominations start. I don't even know when the uh, yeah I can't remember when the Oscars is this year now. Well, it's normally but, um, it's normally around the end of middle or end of March, isn't it, or something like that? Yeah, is it moved into April? Maybe I can't remember. Let's have a look. Yeah, twenty twenty one Sunday. Oh, bloody hell! Sunday twenty fifth of April this year. Yeah, so they've pushed it really far back. So I wonder if that's why they're still waiting on some of the release of the films, or maybe it's. Amazon want to drop it after the Oscars, after it's picked up some awards or something, I don't know. Well, I know it screened at TIFF, I think, or some yeah, festival did, yeah. back back in 2019, so it has screened Yeah. in in cinemas. Apparently, you can watch it on Prime in the US. What the hell's going on? I don't know. Yeah. Come on, Amazon, sort it out. <laughs> but, yeah. So what have you been watching? Uh, I've watched quite a lot myself, but um, I guess uh, a few things I want to talk about. Uh, I watched Minari, which I really recommend. I think that's oh, going to yeah. be awards contention this year. I think um, well, I'll leave it to people to watch and not want to say too much about it. It's very performance-led, and the performance are, like it's really just engaging. Um, Stephen Stephen Yuan Stephen Yuan um, is from, wonderful um, from the. Walking Dead. From Walking no. Dead, yeah. Is this a Korean yeah, yeah. film? No. <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> That's what I wanted to talk about because okay. it's being put up for. Um, it's actually being put up for uh, all the foreign language awards in like the Oscar seasons as like um, Korean film, but it is a film about America. It's a film set in Arizona from okay. like an American. Sorry, Arkansas it is. Uh, they it's about a Korean family that have moved from California to Arkansas. Their first generation, as in like the parents grew up in Korea, but the kids were born in America, and their household is a mix of like Korean and and American and English language. Quite naturally, it shifts all the time from them mm-hmm. just speaking yeah, yeah, the yeah. two languages. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's probably a really um, accurate portrayal of how like a first generation family speak and and use language but because of that choice it's just getting put in for tons of like korean movie awards in in america and being treated like this foreign film which is not it's a it's not a film about korea it's a film about america about americans and i just think more people should see it that way it's that kind of implicit racism in the way we make films if it's directed by someone with not with like a Korean name with yeah. Korean actors they see it just as a Korean film which is not true and I think it was the same as The Farewell by um, Lulu Wong that came out of, um, was it last year? <laughs> the director was born in Colorado <laughs> yeah exactly like it's so it's, it's, it's racism it's racism in the awards like uh, yeah Lulu Wong same thing that film is not it, it's set in China but majority of film is about the kind of culture clash of an American, an Amer- Asian American girl going back to China and having to kind of clash with this culture that like people over there think she should just understand, but she's American, you know. Mm. Um, and I think this is the same thing again. And I think I just hope we get over this in the next few years. We get over the fact that we see like 
foreign languages being spoken on, on screen and we just consider it to be a foreign thing when it really isn't that's a this film is more about america than like a, mo- a lot of films i've watched you know um but really recommend it really recommend it i mean i never heard of it until you spoke about it and the only reason why i said korean is because i was looking on google and it went a korean end of sentence <laughs> so i had to click on it so it's just korean it, it's getting absolutely just tied in saying it's a Korean film and there is a lot of Korean in it but it's that's the way it's working they're trying to accurately portray what like you know an immigrant family you know sound like really um, I think it does it really well cool um, I watched uh, a couple of documentaries that I wouldn't really quickly tell people to watch really more than anything else Adam Curtis has a new documentary out called Can't Get You Out of My Head if you've never watched an Adam Curtis documentary in the world that this might not be the best one to start with because you're literally looking at like seven hours or something. <laughs> but okay. um, Adam Curtis is probably he's my favourite British like documentary maker. He has very distinctive artistic style. He he relies on like archive clips and voiceovers and music scenes, um, to tell tell his narratives. And all his narrative is always kind of about like first kind of like your identity in in like the 20th 21st century the identity of a person what it means to be someone living in this century i have seen this been... advertised on bbc iPlayer, and the only reason i haven't clicked on it is because the picture is from death is it like death note or something yeah it is and so yeah. i was like oh, i don't want to watch that so it's nothing to do with that then <laughs> no no it's That's it's okay it's about like it's about recent history and there's a there's a great um, I think episode five is the one that really taught to me. And it's about the way that um, talking about kind of archaeology and history, it's the way that a false narrative of our historical past led to basically ISIS is the kind of shorthand. Oh, okay. um, and I just find it fascinating. I think he lays out his thesis like in such a brilliant way and such an engaging way. If you've never watched Adam Curtis before, I would recommend watching um, Hyper Normalization uh, first. Say he did. I didn't realize he did Hyper Normalization. Yeah, uh, which is um, it's it's long. It's still a long thing, but it's a little more easier to get hold of than I think watching this six part. Can't get you out of my head, which all of them are long, you know. Uh, but um, that's wonderful, and it's absolutely worth watching. It's he's um, he's a genius, and the BBC. Are, Ollie said, but the BBC are barely pushing this. It's almost like they're kind of burying it. Um, it's weird that it's just buried on their on their iPlayer. It's not being put on like a BBC Four or anything like that. Yeah, no, and yeah, I think it's think a put really it on four at least. Yeah, you think it would be, and I think it's a really important like like he calls it an emotional history of the modern world. I think it's really important about the way you know the way Britain is right now and the way the world is right now. And I think he's really getting to the key points about about what has shaped that world really and i think it's look really cool the, <laughs> look at the soundtrack at godspeed you black emperor yeah yeah nine inch nails the specials uh apex twin loads of good stuff on there loads of good stuff yeah he uses a lot of music and a lot of Ennio kind of um, dance and stuff like that he keeps yeah. cutting back to chinese opera in it and things it's 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 as a filmmaking thing it's remarkable really oh, bright eyes one of your faves yeah yeah it is bright isn't it yeah Nice. And the other documentary that I watched recently is called The Lady in the Dale. Okay. And uh, it's a four-part thing, HBO, and it's directed by. Um, well, no, no, it's Lady in the Dale. It's about a con. It's about um, in the mid seventies, out of nowhere, this woman arrives with a three three-wheeled car that becomes like a sensation 
uh, it's being touted as like something different for the 70s instead of these big huge metal cars this is lightweight it's economical it's cheaper um and then like uh this this kind of rise in in her popularity means the press start going after her and quite quickly a local press office finds out that she's a trans woman and the, uh, okay. and the narratives suddenly changes over her in the press and uh then they find out her history that she's she actively was like a confidence trickster she spent a lot of her life um, prior to transitioning doing like cons and stuff and they basically merge these two elements of her story to 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 shape her as her like her being trans is is a con and she's purposely like pretending to be a woman to con people millions of pounds to make this con car basically right and it's a huge kind of trial by press it's a huge hounding by the press in it um and for the rest of her life she ends up going to court over it she fights in court for like her name to even be used you know and to be recognized as you know her her real name and to be recognized as a woman in court and stuff like that and uh it's a story that I didn't really know anything about and it's absolutely fascinating and it's presented in a such an interesting way because they have absolutely no footage really to use. They have a few photos. Um, so they animate the photos. Do you have, do you remember the um, cartoon series on Nickelodeon was called Angela's Anaconda? Yeah, Andra- yeah, I remember that. It was really creepy looking. Yeah, that's that style of animation in it all the way through which is very odd to choice, but I kind of like it. I kind of vibe with it when I was watching it. Um, it's directed by a trans woman as well, uh, Zachary Drucker, who I think would be a, at some point, I think will be a force in, in filmmaking and hopefully she gets to do more stuff. And I just think it's a case of like uh, watching a bit of trans history directed by a trans woman uh, about, a, a, you know, she's a complicated person, Elizabeth Carmichael. She had a complicated past but like telling that story fairly uh, is really worth watching. And the twist in the fourth episode, <laughs> which I don't want to spoil for anyone, but the twist in the fourth episode uh, like punched me in the jaw about, about one of the characters that we've been following, basically, and about the way the media kind of hounds, as, as hounded and treated trans people for our history, especially the media in America. Um, it's just really, really good, and I really recommend it. it. I watched it in one sitting without any trouble. I just wanted to keep watching it, so I really recommend that. Does she stop being naughty, though, once, all, <laughs> once it all comes out? Does she stop, like... There's a debate whether she was really trying to con people with the car, right, or right. if she legitimately... Like, the engineers they talked to legitimately were trying to make this thing, and they never considered it to be anything else but legitimately trying to make something. Because um, I guess you, li- you've got to allow people to alter their ways. You know, you can't keep brushing people with the same. No, do you know what I mean? You've got to allow, like, yeah. And like, um, people have always got a past, but they're allowed to change. They're allowed to. One thing her lawyer says as well is, um, nothing. People do the kind of like she was getting money based. She was getting people to sign up and give money without getting a product. And there was a lot of talk of whether she was embezzling the money they were giving them or actually making the car. That's kind of still under debate, really. She was jailed for it, so in court she was jailed for embezzling, like and trick, like taking this money. But um, her lawyer was basically saying the amount of people that have done this kind of thing in white collar crime and never got any kind of near the court is is remarkable. Like she was not on trial for being 
affords that she was on trial for being trans right. and that was the bigger thing and even when they talk to the jury their main thing is about the fact that she's trans you know they're obsessed with the way she was dressing in court and obsessed mm. with like um you know ca- calling in the wrong pronouns and stuff like that it's it's absolutely was a trial for that and it wasn't a trial for like her actual crimes which i won't defend her actual crimes you know but mm. it's it's really interesting well they're two show separate things like, aren't they really yeah they exactly do you know what i mean so and they merged into one thing. Yeah. They're just like, this person is a confidence trickster and then look, like, he's he's doing it now, they would say. like, um, mm. And that was part of the most of the court trial. And even, like, after her latter part of her life, when she came out of jail, um, the press never stopped, you know, um, never stopped. And, like, they, they didn't even know who she was. And as soon as they latch onto that little bit of fact about her, then it becomes a story that the press want to kind of publish and kind of, you know... Um, get you know, get clicks, get reads, get stuff because she's trans, and that was a big part of that story, really. Yeah, it very emotionally sat with me, and I really, really recommend it. No, I'm going to check it out. And I guess we've blathered on for ages. You're going to have to cut this down. <laughs> I am cutting it down. <laughs> and today we're covering 1957's uh, Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Slutar du aldrig att fråga? Nej. Jag slutar aldrig. Och till sitter herren, han är ganska fjärran. Men din broder satan, möter du på gatan. Vad har du gjort av min fru? Sommaren är förstås bättre än vintern. För på sommaren slipper man frysa. Men våren är det allra bästa. Då blir det där blåturaskogsgeneralen! Så inte lägger det på käften Så att du inte ens kan göra dina konster för Turkar och kanibaler Pesten Den svarta döden Hemsökte Europa Vid mitten av 1300-talet Den härjar också i Sverige När riddaren Antonius Block Är på hemväg från ett korståg En gång drog han ut Till det heliga landet Som en trosvis ung krigare nu återvänder han, plågad av tvivel och ovisshet. Skulle det inte finnas någon gud? Den tanken är honom outhärdlig. När döden plötsligt står framför honom vill han ha uppskor och lockar döden till ett parti schack. Till innan han dör vill han ha gjort en enda meningsfull handling. Det får han tillfälle till när slumpen för i hans väg en liten gycklarfamilj som mitt i en värld av lidande och ondska bevarat sin ljusa förtröstan, din glädje över att leva. Och när schackpartiet lider mot sitt slut slår han omkull pjäserna för att vinna tid och för att den lilla familjen ska hinna rädda sig undan döden. Oh, God. 
Right, so this is a film. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Meg, it's a film. <laughs> I, uh, I was... Yeah, so a quick summary. It's set in Sweden during the Black Death. It tells the story of a knight um, who's just back from the Crusades. And it tells the story of his game of chess he plays with the with death who has come to take him to the afterlife. That's the story. It's easy. It's a simple story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's no complicated than that. Um I was kind of scared to watch this. I was kind of dreading watching it, actually. I've been putting off watching this film, I think, for my whole life. Because, um, <laughs> like, I just get my... my The th- idea in my head about it is basically, like, art film. And mm-hmm. it, and I think in a lot of ways we did, like, uh, Rashomon, who, like, kind of introduced the idea of, like, Japanese cinema to America. Um, Rafifi, in a large way, introduced kind of French noir to America. And I think this introduced art house mm-hmm. as like a staple to like American cinema or world cinema. Like, and you know, art house films are about the existential dread, you know, of, of life and stuff like that. And I know the tropes and I've seen art films and stuff like that. And I was just, I had an idea in my head what this film was um, before watching it because I knew all the tropes and I knew it was like, it invented, you know, didn't invent art house, but it brought art house to a mainstream. So, I've seen the parody and I thought this film was going to be that and I'm pleasantly surprised it's not what I thought it was it's really. a lot more narrative driven I think and more yeah, character driven yeah. than I thought as well like I thought a lot of it was going to like the only pictures I saw of it was on the beach with Death and um, Max von Sydow's character what's yeah. his name uh, but, but, but keep, what's his name oh the character Block. name um, Antonius Antonio Block, Block yeah, yeah. I just seeing them on the beach and I thought the whole most of the film would take place there yeah, I kind of thought yeah. I, when it started on the film I thought okay this is him dying on the beach mm, this is him, mm. and then I thought it would then I thought it was going to be cutting back and forth or you know to that moment and then to previous like his but no it doesn't it's it's like sequential isn't it very um, has a narrative drive to it. It's not a lot of. I thought there was going to be a lot of people staring, like doing soliloquies. Um, yeah, doesn't really do that at all. Like at any point, really. <laughs> it's and it's funny. Yeah. Like it's really quite light-hearted, which um, I think I'll put that down to kind of fact. I, I believe Ingmar I- Ingmar knew that to do a film about the existential dread of death, he needs to make it human you know he needs to put that kind of comedy into it and light into it and, but also and, he has uh, directed quite a few comedies as well so definitely that yeah influenced it as well but this seems to be like a project that's like gestated with him for a long time and he's done it in various forms like as a, a radio yeah, drama the, as a play that's right, yeah and it was called yeah. like the, the the wood painting or something wood like painting that. Yeah. yeah yeah and um at its core it's it's tackling an idea of like i'm not I'm not very, I'm not really spiritual at all, mm. really. Um, but this is tackling the idea of the silence of God and what that means to people with faith. And the silence of God is the idea that no matter how much you talk to God, God doesn't talk back. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to accept that silence as part of your faith. And this takes that head on. And the whole narrative of this film is that Antonius is struggling with that idea because he's just been to see the worst of humanity in um in the crusades 
and is trying to understand was it worth that all that like disaster and all that hell um, there must be a bigger picture of this he's come back to Sweden the black death is here he's, he's seen his country you know, like the ravages of plague and he's just he must he, he's aware that there must be an, something more than this like he needs like um, he needs like a sign that there's like a reason for this suffering or there's reason for life to be this terrible which is a very big thing to talk about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, a hard film to do a fun podcast about. For a start, like it's never really explained or really cares about what they're di- what he's dying of, what what is his cause no. of death, or it's like no. that's not of interest really to the film in the slightest, is it? Like no, I guess you know, the, I assume you could assume they've got the plague. I don't know. Like that's obviously a big. Yeah, I was wondering if. My my th- head theory was that maybe they died of a shipwreck mm. at the start of the film, but because of the game, that means they survived the shipwreck, and at the end of the film, they finally die because of the storm. Right. Okay. Yeah, because you do hear the yeah because the storm passes over the uh, the actor and his the actor yeah and he's like that's the sound of death passing over us doesn't he or something like yes yeah, that. that's what he says yeah the angel of death or something is passing over but what I like about so, death in this film he's he's like. He's neither good nor bad. He's just death. He's, he's just death. Yeah. And he's quite... He's got that kind of weird kind of look to him, but he's not, like, overly menacing. He's kind of quite down-to-earth in a really he's, bizarre way. In, yeah, he is. He's incredibly working class and down-to-earth. Yeah. He's incredibly, like, just like matter-of-fact. Uh, it's, it's what made me think of Discworld's death. Um, to do the quote at the beginning because I, I, there's no, he's absolutely inspired by this kind of portrayal of death just being like a force because he has this job it's not he's not an act of spirituality mm. and he's not an act of faith he's just death like and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter who you are and or, or what your position or what your beliefs are you still have to deal with this kind of very matter of fact you know moment of death really I mean, what struck me most was I just thought it looked amazing. Like, yeah, it God, yeah. So, it looks so good. Like, just very, like every every frame is just well put together. Like, there's a shot at the end when they're all having their last supper, and the camera just pulls back, and it each character eventually like turns. Obviously, you know, death's in the room now, mm. and just the way they all look. And then you've got the shot then when they're all kind of all together. I mean, we'll get into it later, but how they all react differently to like, yeah, yes, yes. facing death essentially. It was um, like obviously the big th- structure of this film is the dance macabre, mm-hmm. um, the dance of death by the faint. It- bow, 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 bow. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you remember that band. I always think of them when I hear the dance macabre. <laughs> And I've uh, I've seen the Dance Macabre twice. I saw it in uh, I've seen a version of it in Tallinn in an old church, and I've oh, seen yeah. a huge version of it in Bern. Actually. And you saw and the it in the custard B- factory when the Faint played it live on stage. <laughs> did we watch? We think I see the Faint at the custard factory. Yeah, we did. Yeah, awesome. That's a memory I don't have. Supported by <laughs> Beep Beep, I think, which oh, I think wow. is pretty much all members of the Faint anyway. Oh, I wonder if they're on um, Apple Music. Can I check? 
talking. Shit, what are we talking? <laughs> Quick on it, keep talking. <laughs> keep talking about important things about art. I don't know what to say now. You've thrown. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, I don't think they are. Uh, oh well. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, and and the dance macabre was really cool. The idea of the dance macabre is like no matter your position in life, the death follows you. So you have these like kings and queens and prostitutes and gestures and like artists and like lawyers, uh, but behind them all the time is this like depiction of death, like this rotting corpse of death that's touching you on the shoulder and stuff like that. And that's clearly that the whole this is the whole film, mm. <laughs> basically. No matter what's going on, uh, dance macabre, the death is there. And the film finishes with the dance macabre. They're, they're in silhouette. They're um, jump. They're kind of dancing up the hill, led by death, with the actor playing the lute at the, the end. Yeah. And um, that's a, that's a shot that I knew before watching this film. I've seen that shot in countless you know film stuff. And uh, what I found out through this is like that's none of the cast. Is it not? Uh, it, well, no, it's not there's talk one of them. It's a reshoot or something, or is like yeah, a it's a pickup shot. shot right at the end because yeah. this film was shot incredibly quickly. I think thirty days or something. Thirty-five, I think. Thirty-five a on a shoestring budget, like on a budget. budget that barely exists. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they basically picked up. He had this idea for this last shot uh, that ties the film together, which it really does need. Actually, I think it's really, like, really mm. important they actually have it, and. Uh, it's a few crew members and a couple of tourists. And the tourists had no idea what was going on. They just got asked if they want to dress up in this and, and be led up the hill. Was he the guy from American Movies, Mom? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Put on the gown again. Actually, I think she's Swedish. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe that's where maybe it all so. comes from. When it's actually all about American film. Yeah. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, like we've talked about it before, going to a little bit more about Block. Like, he, he, he's fed. He's basically this film is portraying the moment in in kind of medieval history or the or humanity history of of Northern Europe, where um. Can, can we just point out that Max von Sydow is like the most kind of Nordic kind of looking. Dude. I was gonna. I want to go into this now, okay? Because like. <laughs> What a what a gift as a director to have Max like, Van Sydow. His face like, almost looks like a comic. Like I don't know, it's, he's very angular. He looks but, painted. Like but then he's got he, this voice like Andre the Giant. <laughs> he kind of <laughs> looks like Paul Bettany, but chiselled with I don't know, like I don't know. And then yeah, he's yeah, just just I, I love him. Yeah, just looks like he looks like he's carved out of wood in this. Yeah, he yeah. looks like a wood cutting. Like, um, just some of the scenes when he's sitting there in this, in his, in his nice robes, with this sword, he like that blonde hair. He just looks absolutely just. I, I, I can't phrase it. It's just you, you, just otherworldly. Like just an absolute face that is just so iconic and. And so, like, tells everything. You can see every kind of, like, flick of his emotion in his face and stuff like that. Like, what a perfect gift for a filmmaker. Mm. He's wonderful in it. Absolutely wonderful. And Max von Sydow had a wonderful career. Like, for, like, can't believe he only died a couple of years ago. I know. He must have been getting on. Was it not even a couple? It was last year, wasn't it? It was 20. Yeah, he was yeah. 90 years old. Yeah. And it just, he's so good in this film. Like, and at. Maybe it could have worked with other actors, but I don't know. Like, I don't know if it could have. 
I mean, he must have a massive filmography. Like, just yeah, it's it's, yeah, it's quite. I was going to say he did this, and the next like the next thing I really know him for is like The Exorcist, which is another just yeah. like absolutely iconic horror film, like um, dealing with the kind of God again. <laughs> like, I'm just looking through his IMD his catalogue. It looks like he was in Judge Dread. Was he? Judge oh, he Fargo. was. Yeah. He was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, Christ, I forgot about that. He was Judge. He was the. The evil judge in it. Judge I don't Fargo. think he was a particular picky actor in terms of what he did. Mm. Like he's he's clearly done some shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> but but amongst there, he's done some good, you know, some some great performances and great films. But like, yeah, I mean, he was the voice of Vigo in Ghostbusters Two. Yeah, he is Vigo. <laughs> um, <laughs> what else? He was <laughs> he was in Minority Report. He was. He's one of the funny one I was for. He was in Conan, I think, wasn't he? Oh, he's uh, in Shutter Island. Awakenings, was he in? Yeah, he's oh. in Awakenings, yeah. Dr. Peter Ingham. Um, what? Oh, uh, June. What he's in one of the rush hours. Yeah, three. He's also in three, is it? <laughs> Star Wars uh, Force Awakens. Oh, he is, yeah. Useless role, really. Which but, could have been more interesting, but no, they just yeah, kind of killed him off. They kind of wasted him, even though he looked great. It was a great opening thing to have Max von Sydow there for yeah. me. Anyway, like, but they a little bit wasted. I think it was originally meant to be um, Wedge, wasn't it? Oh, that would make more sense. Yeah, it would make more sense, but Wedge wouldn't do it because he wasn't getting paid enough or something ridiculous. Oh come on! <laughs> I know. <laughs> so they, I you want know, that. Just replace him with I want Max that fucking Solo von money. Sydow. Give it me. <laughs> I took down the empire. <laughs> anyway, and um, oh, it's just wonderful. I was, it was something because I was watching. Um, you mentioned two things that I want to quickly talk about. One, because I was watching motion picture Star Trek motion picture the other night, and um, because I was doing it because Blank Check are doing it on Patreon, and uh, Griffin said the same thing about Leonard Nimoy. Like, what a face! Just what a mm. gift! Like, like just every line and, and picture on it like it's just so of course he's going to play an alien kind of thing like um and it's just the same thing with max on and this you just watch me of course he's playing this kind of man racked with sorrow and faith and and stuff but you um you mentioned paul bettany really quickly i just want to say that wandavision this week was so fucking good um and uh and paul bettany what a gift that he just did a voiceover in 2008 for no reason <laughs> <laughs> like he thought his career was over like and now he's doing this it's just so oh wonderful. yeah because he was I keep forgetting he was Jarvis <laughs> yeah he was Jarvis just like he, what, he spent like a couple of hours in a voice recording studio like didn't even think about it and they decided I, to bring, like bring him back And again he's an actor who's done some great work but also a ton of shit like priest yeah. and stuff like that I think he was saying that when he took like Iron Man he was going to stop being an actor as well really like he just wasn't getting any roles and he wasn't able to kind of maintain it and he just took it as like a cheap job and now he's doing like this series on Disney Plus and he's nailing it like and so is Elizabeth Olsen is as well nothing to take away the last episode her and him I think just a force the absolute force of like I've in it I say filmmaking but the the big strength of it is that it's TV and it knows it's TV and I think that's what's really cool about it cool but like, anyway, I, I didn't. This felt like compared to like the searches that we watched last week. This film felt felt a lot more contemporary. I mean, it does have yeah. some characters who are a bit more larger than life in terms of their performance, but they're the actors, I think. 
Yes. Like everyone else is a bit more subdued and a lot more kind of... But even like know. it goes from like existential dread of like of like Max Ancidot's character to kind of a Looney Tunes comedy when Death's cutting down a tree. <laughs> that was hilarious. The fact that he's not even using his sickle or whatever. He's just using like a... Yeah, it's got like a sword. But like... I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it later on, but, like, the height he goes up at that tree, I don't think he would have killed him. <laughs> I've it's sat on trees that the branches have collapsed and I've not died. But then again, <laughs> maybe it wasn't my time. Maybe death well, was it wasn't just your time, yeah. It was just happened to be his time. He landed awkwardly on his neck or something. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I was getting into, like, yeah, he's a man who, like... He, he, it, I think sometimes this film might be a little kind of hard to grasp unless you watch it a couple of times or something, but... Like it's, it's this man that's obsessed with the fact that he's changing from this religious belief, like this religious fundamentalism of what we call like the medieval mind, to like the kind of modern man. So it's this change of like medieval faith to rational thinking. Um, so I'm so guessing we were meant to believe that Joff is already one step ahead of him in terms of he just doesn't believe in anything. No, I think Joff represents kind of ideal Christianity or modern Christianity. It's like a Christianity without like a church. It's spiritualism right. without that kind of capitalism involved. Oh, in sorry, it. I'm I'm thinking. Hang on, which one's Joff? Joff is the actor with the. Family. Oh no, I'm not thinking of Joff. I'm thinking of um, like his Johns, uh, Jones, John, Johns. Yeah, his Johns, like Yeah, his like. <laughs> I just say a name a hundred times. <laughs> Yeah, John's is like um, he's a man with no faith and no yes. like, and he's a man with no like drive or compulsion in life apart from like himself really. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's that kind of thing where Ma- where Max's character like Block he needs something to fill that void in him, and it mm. used to be spirituality and he's lost that, so he's looking for reason to fill that hole. Um, and it nothing fills that kind of like shorthand in cinema for reason than the chessboard you know it's the ultimate game of like reason it's just two people's minds battling each other you know mm. um and there's a bit right at the beginning of this film where he he washes his face he kneels down in the light and prays he stands up walks into the darkness and then the camera moves and shows you the chessboard and i was like well i don't need to be a genius to run, to read <laughs> film to work out what i've just watched happen here with this yeah, character it's not subtle it's not subtle, which is great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank which you I think well. kind of demystifies the kind of the whole art house. That, like yeah. it's it's it. I think it's less it's scary. Self-explanatory, and I mean, obviously, there's yeah. a lot to go into, and there's a lot more about it than you know your average action blockbuster film like The Meg. Absolutely, but yeah. like, I mean, this yeah. is. Ing- Ing- Ingmar grew up in an incredibly religious family. I think his father was a, a huge, like, fire and brimstone type preacher. He obviously grew up with this idea of of this religion and, and God filling that space. And he clearly was a man who then struggled with this idea of the silence of God, struggled with the idea of, of you know, what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be a man of faith? And... Uh, in this, you see, like Max von Sydow's character talk about, like this is my own hand. I can move it, and I can play chess with death. With death, you know, I, I, I control my own destiny with this. However, I think what's really important about the filmmaking is that when this film is made, it's nineteen fifty-six, seven, um, and Ingmar had just seen what rational thought without 
spirituality without faith, without love does to the world. And he'd just been through like Nazi occupation of Sweden, mm-hmm. just been through like uh, the Hiroshima bombings and stuff. And, and he's clearly fighting with this, the idea of what is spirituality? Like what, what how does that feel like a human soul? And, or how does rationality fill a human soul? And, and what, how do we weigh these thing, two things together? And I think that's the that's what's contributed to the very fact that this film exists. That playthrough, you know, it's a it's we say this a lot, but it's a it's definitely a film of its time. It's a film of the people, their own experiences, who made it, who grew up with, and it's a film of the time that they decided to tell that story. And it does fit into that. It wouldn't make it would be a different film made in a different time. I guess is what I'm saying, which is probably a very obvious thing to say, but. I think it just I just felt this from this film more than sometimes some of the other things we cover. Mm. And uh he even says it about himself. He says like um he says death is present in this picture, it's throughout this picture, and everyone reacts differently to death. And then after this picture I still think very much about death, but it's no longer an obsession anymore. I can just live with it. So this picture was good medicine. Is that was his <laughs> own words on this film. Well, I guess, you know, you do write, you know, if you're writing a book, you're writing music, write music or a film. It's, it is, a, you're kind of, it's like your own therapy, isn't it? Kind of yeah. getting yeah. your own kind of baggage out kind of and kind of working it out and figuring it out and how you can live with it. Yeah, definitely. And I think like when we're looking at this, this is like, he was clearly tackling these ideas that he was thinking about, this idea of spirituality and faith and death and stuff like that. But he is also a great filmmaker in the fact that he makes it a narrative film. He mm. makes it something entertaining and funny and he and he fills it with performances as well. And art, you know, you talked about the way everything looks in this film. So it's it's not just like a... It's, it's not a rote kind of like exploration of himself. He's making, you know, a film for audiences here and he's, he's aware he's making a film for people to watch. And I think that's the strength of it. I think that's what changes it from being an interesting art house film to regularly being amongst the top 10 films ever made. I think that's what adjusts that bracket, really, and makes it so iconic to people, really. That said, though, I think if you were to put this in front of your average Joe blogs who goes to the cinema a couple of times a, a year or whatever, I don't, I don't, I think they'll appreciate it. I mean, they might do, but I imagine they might do. Imagine not. But like, I don't think it's for everyone. <laughs> but at the same no, time, not everything has to be. It's for not. Everyone. It's not a very. It's not a fully inclusive. It's not like you know you have to be part of a club to kind of. Yes, it's it. not one of those films that I would. I worry about telling someone to watch. Like yeah. it's, it is very watchable, um, much more than I, I thought it would be. And I think though, like, I think the evidence in our culture is that it, it is that film. It is a film that people have absorbed and watched. And I think people who know nothing about film, you could show them the picture of death playing chess on the beach with uh, Max von Sydow, and they go, oh, "Yeah, I know what that is." You know, I. I know that cultural memory. I know that thing um, because it's referenced in a thousand stuff. Like, and I, I was trying to go through my head to try and remember some of the stuff it's referenced in. And um, obviously, Bill and Ted, like, yeah. uh, you know, Bogus Journey, we covered that already. That's obviously a huge thing of this. But, like, there's um, uh, Woody Allen's Love and Death, there's a huge thing about this in it. Um, Scrubs. I remember there's a scene when he's playing 
Connect Four with yeah, I think even Monty Python have done it. Monty Python's Meaning of Life has a huge yep. huge sketch. Uh Last Action Hero literally has Oh yeah. <laughs> like it's played by Ian McKellen, but literally has like death from this film come into the world to be part of the film. Um I still wish that film had more characters come out of the cinema. I know. Come on, Hollywood remake. <laughs> remake. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you remember this, um, but the Animaniacs had a huge. Well, you um, sent me the video. I haven't watched it, but um... you should. It, like the death is death's got a Swedish accent. He talks <laughs> in a Swedish accent. Like the whole bit is a portrayal of like Ingmar parody. You know, like the shot of one person facing the camera, the other person facing like sidewards on, and then just kind of like quoting wit- witticisms and stuff like that. Like the Animaniacs are doing that all through that little segment. Um, the Muppets go to the movies in 1981. Uh, they did a, they did a section called Silent Strawberries, which the other film um, Ingmar releases this year is called Wild Strawberries. Um, well, they and eat wild strawberries in this as well. They do as well, yeah. And drink. Uh, <laughs> I just love the way that um, the subtitles where it says it's milk that's been milked or something. <laughs> it's like all right. I love that scene. I wanted to talk about that as well. Um, Yes, yeah, so this has the Swedish chef playing the lead in Muppets Go to the Movies, and Beaker is playing Death. And uh, <laughs> Sam the Eagle is translating what they say, and Sam the Eagle's faking everything very seriously, honestly. But it, um, halfway through the sketch that Sam the Eagle thinks they're messing up, Kermit and Fozzie come in as the travelling actors and start performing a, a song. <laughs> it's like, it's remarkable to me how much of like a parody of this it is. It's not just like a parody of like black and white films or something. It's a parody of this film. It's a parody of Ingmar. And like, that's, you know, that was a common, that's a, this is Muppets Go to the Movies. It was a special on like ABC, you know, on a Saturday evening and stuff like that. Like, I think this is massively just in cultural memory. And the other one I remember is um, French and Saunders used to do constant, Ingmar Bergman jokes in their in their um, sketch show in the nineties. Um, I can't remember what they used to I call the sessions. If that's because they, you know, they did those like specials and they'd like remake yeah. a film. They tend to yeah. get like like actual directors to do those. So like Edgar Wright did one. I, I don't know which yeah. year he did. So I don't know if sometimes that might be the filmmakers coming through as well. But I'm Maybe. sure that uh, French and Saunders are well versed in. Uh, yeah. Exactly, totally. I just think it's not just the fact they're well versed; it's that they feel comfortable enough that the audience knows this. Yeah, they as get well. the joke. Yeah, and they get it's the just, joke. It's and... just yeah, like you said, it's just in the cultural kind of vernacular now, isn't it? It's just everyone yeah. knows. You see a black guy in a robe with a, a a gaunt white face, and he's like, "That's death." That's death. And you also know about the fact that it's death in a way that he's like, like you said, like the common man almost. He's not. Yeah. A flaming skull or anything like that he's not like otherworldly he's he's just the job you know <laughs> like doing the job really um but just yeah so that was kind of all hanging on me before watching the film as well because i'd ne- I, I i think i said last week i felt like i knew this film but i'd never watched it i felt because i feel like i could write you an ingmar Bergen sketch uh, without ever had seeing anything because it's just such a, this strong cultural kind of thread that we have mm. really um, any other thoughts, or shall we try and blast through the plot a little bit? It's not a very plotty movie, but like no, but I think there's lots of moments up, like, within in it that we can kind of yeah talk about. Mm. Yeah. So as you said, it opens up with um, and 
a narr- narration from the Bible, like every good yeah. film. <laughs> it's from Revelations, and it's where the name of the film comes from. Um, it's about the science of God as well. It's something about when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was something blah blah blah. Angels and trumpets did sing. <laughs> it just reminds all that kind of stuff. Reminds me of all the flipping Black Death metal bands that try way too hard, and they yeah. kind of they they kind of latch onto all this like imagery, and it's just like. <sighs> I wonder when the Black Death movement started in like Sweden and Norway. I wonder yeah. if it was around this time as well. I wonder if there's something about Sweden that was going on at this time. <laughs> what black metal um, in the fifties? <laughs> I don't know when it went. No, it can't have been that early, can it? No, <laughs> no. Black metal was with... around the eighties. Like, I think one of the first Black Death metal bands were actually British. Oh really? Uh, yeah, I forgot that. what they're called now, but um, yeah. I know there's a famous church burnings and stuff like that that was going well, in the 80s. Well, I worked with a band, well, a singer from a band called Behemoth. And his name's, his, well, his, his real name's Adam, but his stage name is Nurgle. <laughs> and uh, so he did a solo album. He's got a solo thing called Me and That Man. And he's Polish. Okay. And the song that I did a video for is called Burning Churches. And he's, I'm not exactly that proud of it, but it was a job. <laughs> and I'd, Yeah, I'm sure. And um, but he is now because Poland's very uh, religious, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So he's up for basically he's been arrested many times, and he's now going through massive court things about base about, about blasphemy, basically. No, and way. he's like appe- wow. he's appealing for uh, donations and that because you know he Only could go he done. <laughs> So he could go away for quite a while if he doesn't know. But at the same time, he's a showman, and I think he's probably latching onto this and probably using it to kind of, yeah, as a promotional thing and stuff like that. But like, if you watch their videos, they're all kind of got like Gabriel with the trumpet and all this kind of stuff with eyes ripped out and wings made out of carcasses and stuff like that. It's all really (laughs) dumb stuff. But it's the same we were talking about. We were talked about the Eliza Lamb documentary last week, and um, the metal artist in that that gets blamed for the murder that's doing nothing but just doing metal like he's just <laughs> yeah. doing metal imagery and stuff and he's completely innocent and just a nice guy you know like but yeah. these people online see this kind of music videos where he's aping you know horrible stuff and they just they believe the kind of satanic panic of it all you know to be fair that guy didn't help himself when he did that one video where he's wearing a mask and he's like I did not do it <laughs> you're like alright mate <laughs> no. you could have just done it in a less kind of trolling way but uh... <laughs> But you know, it's still. <laughs> I yeah. want to say, like, anyway, Max is on the beach. Max, um, yeah. I do want to say uh, the historical accuracy of this film is well out there. Um, <laughs> the Crusades happen, you know, finish really about a hundred years before the Black Death arrives <laughs> in, in um, Europe. <laughs> but. That doesn't matter, and um, I wasn't watching this film about like historical accuracy of the medieval times. That I wasn't part of my thinking when I was watching this. It's just I felt like I should say that because right, there might be enough. some people listening who were like, "Why didn't you say this?" <laughs> well, but, um, to be fair, in the circles that you hang around with, uh, I can understand they probably would say, "Why didn't you mention this?" That's what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> But um, it's not about that. He's just doing an artistic portrayal of medieval mm-hmm. world. He's, and he's looking at the medieval mind, you see. I've said this already. I've got my point out. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's lying on the beach. We say, well, it's a crashing and there's a chessboard um, on, on the beach, which 
is very weird. I could never really tell if the chessboard was actually there or not. Um, I'm, you know, well, like when he's... Well, they see the chessboard. Like, the, the lady sees the chessboard at the end of the film, so it seems like the chessboard is a physical thing. It's a physical thing that he's carrying around with him and setting yeah. up. Yeah, which I guess people do kind of play chess against themselves, don't they? When Well, I, mean, I guess, I, like, I you know, he's but... probably, like... <laughs> Death for him might be like an internal kind of his conscious, like do you know what I mean? Like he's kind of battling with himself. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm just thinking, like in terms of like other people in this film, like Jons, is he looking over at Max and he's sitting with like a chessboard in front of him and he's just watching Max move both pieces? Like, is that the world he's seeing? Whereas in the actuality, Death sitting opposite Max. Yeah. Because later on in the film, the artist guy, Joff, he literally sees Death playing chess with him, doesn't he? he he's got that kind of second sight or something. Yeah. He literally watches Death sitting opposite him. Anyway, it's not very, it's not important. It's just, <laughs> it just made me think about <laughs> it. Well, the other guy's asleep on, the, he's not asleep, but he's passed out on the beach, isn't he? Yeah, he is, yeah. So he might um, have even seen this, I guess. But yeah, he... There's a joke right at the start. He takes both pieces, hiding it, hides it behind his back, and um, asks Death, you know, choose a hand, basically decide what colour you are, and he chooses black. He's like, oh, and, he, oh. and Death just <laughs> jokes that's very appropriate, don't you think? <laughs> and uh, um, it quickly cuts away from that, which surprised me very quickly because I thought, as I think you said this, I thought I was going to be locked into that for a long time. Yeah, I thought they'd go more into the minutiae of like. <laughs> of chess maybe because I was thinking awesome. I haven't played chess since I was like 10 years old I can't remember a thing about it but thankfully it wasn't that necessary it's the weirdest episode of Queen's Gambit I think. <laughs> uh, yeah so they saddled him and leave basically and and they're kind of heading back to Antonius's castle to meet his wife uh, and travelling through a world ravaged by plague which is completely unrelatable isn't it Ollie? no <laughs> Totally, yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know anything about it. No. And um, weirdly enough, I think watching this during the pandemic does give a different another layer to it. Like, mm. it's obviously you're looking at medieval reactions to kind of plaguing this, but the way they picture like the hysteria of like the populace or or the, the way people the plague are using is heading art. south. <laughs> yeah, or the way people are using art to scare the populace into yeah, yeah. into that kind of um. In the way that, and to make money off them to grift them, basically, or just to kind of get them on their side. I think that was really relatable to kind of what we've seen during the pandemic, really. Mm. Um, which, well, was interesting. <laughs> um, quite, what happens? They're kind of wandering through and he asks, yeah, the first time we get an idea about the Black Death is when he asks um, a corpse a direction. <laughs> yeah, and then there's a whole about a two, three minute conversation afterwards going, he wasn't very chatty. He didn't have much to say. He was very dour. <laughs> like, yeah, he right. was like, he. It, I I liked the line because he goes, um, he's quite elegant, but he was gloomy. Yeah, it does have a lot of that kind of, not flouncy dialogue, but kind of like, like later on when the guy is accused of uh, cheating up, doing something with someone else's wife. Yeah, you know, he could just flat out say, "No, nah, it wasn't me, mate." <laughs> but no, <laughs> like the film can't do that. It has to kind of. Play around with Play it. Play around with it, yeah. But anyway. Yeah. But it's very much what Johns is like as a character as well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. My favourite scene with him is later, actually. Uh, 
So, like, we, you know, we come to a church and they're painting Dance Macabre on there. He's talking about the fact that people are going around whipping themselves, like, flagrator, flagrators to punish them. I was trying to figure out, you know, like how we were trying to pronounce how to say this film in Swedish. Yeah, what Uh, is it? Oh, God. (laughs) What is it? Let's have a look. I'm not going to do it. But no, I had yeah, we to. Gave, I was we gave up how do you, yeah, flagellance. Like I was like, how do you pronounce that properly? But it's really Flag- shazzy. Flagellation, flagellation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're basically whipping themselves to because they think that to, to punish themselves they can appease God and stop the plague. And this is another thing that like um, Antonio is just not on board with. He's <laughs> just like, nah, this is not good. Yeah, God, God wouldn't do this. Like, um, and a uh, kind of. I quite like the painter here saying that um, he said skulls are more interesting than a naked women to art to to the audience kind of thing. They people are more captivated by horror than they are kind of sex or something. Mm. And and of course they want this like mural painted up like this because people would like this more than any kind of love on on display, which I think is a very gloomy way of looking at people. But I think it you know understand it but then i think uh, the one guy goes but what if they don't like it goes oh, i'll just paint over it <laughs> just paint over it yeah <laughs> and does john's later paint like a picture of max as well is that what that is is he taking that's a pic- what i assume he is, yeah because he looks at it and then he gives him a dig doesn't he or something yeah, like that. yeah it's like he's taking the piss out of him by being a big gloomy man <laughs> so you, uh, know we- the, you know the 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 christ that he thinks he's talking to yeah, is that the same one that the flagellants are like walking around with later on? Yes, it's, it's yeah. At least it's the same type of depiction of Christ, like screaming out in pain, isn't it? Well, no, that? he's actually talking to a, well, what he thinks is a priest, isn't it? Yeah, he thinks a monk. Yeah, yeah but it's yeah, because yeah. he he's talking to him about God, about like you know, death visited me this morning. We played chess together. Um, no, but little does he know, I've got a little, little trick up my sleeve. It's actually death. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he kind of reveals his strategy for the chess game to to death here, as well. We um, could got a good line here that I liked. Our crude, our crusade was so dumb that only a true idealist could have thought it up. Like I think it's it's John's who says that. Like um, just this idea that the crusade they, they've gone over, you know, the other part like looks like gone around the world to fight in this war that they've got there and realised it was so ridiculous. It's not like life affirming. It wasn't faith affirming or anything. It was just like horrors. Mm. Um, uh, we kind of missed out the. It, it has cut away, and we've met some singers and actors. Oh yeah, uh, before this, yeah. Um, so we have like the juggler Joff is like an acrobat. I swear he only juggles with two balls. I'm like, I can do that. Yeah, I could do that. I thought that <laughs> literally, and he throws one up in the air at a time as well. Yeah. <laughs> He's basically just throwing a ball up into he's got, the air. That's he, his joke. He wants, he's got very high aspirations of his son, though. My son is going to juggle one while one levitates in the air. Yeah, and he can do anything. It won't be impossible for him. Uh, yeah, but I do him like that his wife, thought, though, like, that he believes his son can be whoever or do whatever he wants to. Yes, that's what I like. Like I think like he's he's picturing this kind of like optimism that comes with like a heart that's full of like faith in one hand because he's he's a, definitely a faithful man a spiritual man but in the other hand like kind of faith in his family and love for his family and stuff like that he's a quite of a it's interesting that he's almost like that kind of 
he's that kind of mirror to Max von Sydow's character, but he's quite a silly character as well. He's he's quite a laughable character. He's not like everyone takes the piss out of him when he goes. He he sees a vision of like. Mary, Mary and goes yeah. back to his wife and tells her and she's just like oh yeah you and your visions like you know what was that where he paints time the tires you... red the tires the wheels red yeah what about that time you said the devil painted a wagon or something that's like, it with his was... tail <laughs> yeah and you and you got yeah. your hands were covered in red paint or something like yeah. it's uh so we got him and his wife they've got a kid and also there's another actor with them um who I can't remember his name actually but there's another actor with them uh, and uh, they're just traveling mummers, basically going place to place. And what I quite like about them is um, they moan later on that they have to do all these plays about death and wear skull masks and stuff like that. And they don't want to scare people; they just want to entertain them. Like why? Then they're kind of moaning that I hate having to have to scare people into being good Christians. We shouldn't be there doing that kind of scaring people into the arms of the church, which I thought was a really good like summation. They've got to the church. They're just as they're just leaving the church. There's a woman who's the condemned at the side of the church for being a witch. I think really they're saying they don't really say it, but she's been communing with the devil. Is the way they say it. Um, it's very quickly you realise that she's just mentally ill. She's you know, um, and they're kind of punishing her for that. Uh, but um, Max is kind of obsessed with. I could call him Max, but like. Um, Max is kind of obsessed with um, this woman because he he kind of realizes if she can see the devil, then that means God exists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, does he, does he ask the same question to her and then the other girl at the? They're going to burn, or is that the same girl? I was. Confused. It's the same girl. Oh, it's the same girl. Yeah, it's the same girl. Yeah. So he asks the same question on. twice. Yeah. yeah, to try and get an answer from her. Um, which I kind of liked because I think sometimes like there's a clear separation in this that death is not like the devil. He's not an agent of the devil. He's just an agent of fate. You know, like um, death being there isn't a summation of spirituality. It's something that happens if you're spiritual or not kind of thing. Mm. And uh, his problem is that like, is there anything afterlife? Like there's no, like he's just a personification of death. He's not a personification of like the judo Christian kind of devil uh, like hell heaven kind of things so um and then you got the separation that he's trying to kind of find the devil or if he can find the devil he can find god and he can have some comfort to his soul during this but she has no answers for him at all like and they kind of move on quite quickly really from that oh yeah and they're throwing um, they're throwing around like uh, the meat of like a dead dog or something aren't they Oh yeah, they because it's because it's like putrid it's like, smelling and it keeps the devil away or something like that. Yeah, something. Yeah. Uh, it's like bile from a dead dog mixed with mm. blood or something. Um, I think it's meant to be a punishment to her or keep. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, you, we get introduced to the other character now. Like, there's another two other characters that we haven't spoke about yet. There is um, the mute woman and the thief. And uh, I don't have their names, but John's basically stops the thief from assaulting this. Uh, so this the mute, mute girl, girl is just called the mute girl, and then Ravel is the thief. Ravel, okay, yeah. Um, and uh, we find out Ravel was like a fire and brimstone preacher. He's the one who recruited them to go to the Crusades in the first place. He stayed behind, and in that meantime, he's kind of with the plague. He's lost everything, and he's now just, just living as like. A thief, yeah. 
become a thief really without any faith or without anything um he stops her you know he stops the assault and warns the thief that like if i ever see you again i'm going to cut your face cut your face <laughs> don't you think though uh, john squire looks in like he he kind of reminds me of a bit of um russell crowe in like his robin hood era oh my god yeah because <laughs> that scar that he has along his head as well that goes all the way from his eyebrows all the way up his head um with that shaved head as well really does give that kind of russell crowe robin hood look mm. Which Let's remake this film. Russell Crowe and uh, and who else did I say look like uh, Max von Sydow? Um, Paul Bettany. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do a remake. <laughs> and Death can be played by what's his face from Bill and Ted. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure we can do that tomorrow. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I'm sure it'd be worth. I'll see you on the set first thing <laughs> six a.m. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Squire's played by Gunnar. Um, Bjornstrand, uh, who is like a frequent collaborator with um, Ingmar Bergen, like in I think most of his films, actually. I think Max von Sydow became quite a frequent collaborator as well, didn't he? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you live in Sweden, I think you latch yeah. onto the greatest filmmaker <laughs> yeah, in the why country. Not? Like, why not? Like, um, yes. Yeah, so uh, after that, we kind of. After the cut, we kind of introduced the town, then they make their way into this town, and this town's been ravaged by the plague, it's been ravaged by like everything going on. Uh, the actors are performing there, um, and they're singing, they're dancing, they're trying to like entertain people, but they get in in, in the middle of their kind of a performance, these these gang of flagrants kind of put the down on the operations and start walking in, like whipping themselves and preaching well, at them well before that some of the soldiers or whatever the night whatever they're throwing food at the uh at the actors yeah. they? and they hit the kind yeah. of one who's like the manager kind of guy yes and he kind of salts off and then the the wife of the blacksmith yes kind of somehow it takes a shining to him and then they kind of canoodle off into the woods don't they <laughs> they do <laughs> they absolutely do <laughs> Uh, I, the blacksmith uh, Plog is his name Plog I fucking love the blacksmith in this I absolutely love him I love how he carries a hammer everywhere he's like a cartoon like, character like almost like out something yes. like I don't know like Asterix or something like Asterix that's, that's exactly like, what I thought like, what I mean? he's the blacksmith so he's got to carry the hammer everywhere because that's what blacksmiths have <laughs> <laughs> like he's always at a moment's notice to have to hammer something if he needs to I have a hammer. I'll hammer, hammer in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, because Lisa and the other actor have kind of disappeared off. Well, I do you like the, that juxtaposition, though, of like, the kind of like the jaunty kind of what they're doing, like the kind of little comedy act, then mixed in with these flagellants coming out with their fire and brimstone kind of whipping each other and or themselves and, and yelling like, at rows. the crowd. Like. Yeah. It was I, I I thought of it like an anti-lockdown protest, <laughs> <laughs> like just you having a nice time in London, having like just sitting on the sitting on sitting on a bench, and this bloody anti-lockdown protest comes through, <laughs> yelling at you about wearing a mask and how you have to whip yourself instead yeah. to get rid of God's anger. They won't take um, the vaccination though. No, no, it's just just whips, just whips just is whips. all you need, and then. Uh, we kind of get this kind of weird little story now, like um, uh, that 
the blacksmith's wife disappeared off. The blacksmith's kind of wandering around town trying to find his wife, and he's getting more and more depressed about it. I love this part of the film. We did miss the <laughs> like one I bit did. though, where John Squire meets the mute girl, and he kind of he takes her on as his own like housemate. Oh yeah, I should have said yeah, yeah. And like he, she now joins a little band. Yeah. Well, he tries to kiss her, and she's like, "No, fuck off." And he's like, "I could have raped you." He goes, "You know, <laughs> I could have raped you." You know, nice. Yeah, that was weird. He saves her from basically getting raped. And then instantly tries it on, and he's like, "What?" Like, I will say this though, Ingmar Bergman. So they finally get to the inn, and the traders are in the inn. They're moaning. They're moaning. They haven't sold anything because of lockdown. <laughs> 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 and um, they're talking about how the fact that all the people, all the people that should be buying from them, are dying in fire and stuff like that, and burning themselves. And the blacksmith's still wandering around, going like, "Has anyone seen my wife?" And the thief um, tries to sell like the, a bracelet that he stole to uh, yeah, he stole the dead to Joff, body, yeah. and Joff's like, uh, no. So this obviously kind of rivals riffles at ravel up the wrong way, doesn't it? I guess so. When he kind of sees an opening of the blacksmith talking to Joff about him being his wife going off with an actor, he's like, oh, you're an actor, though, aren't you? Aren't you? Aren't you? Yeah. You. <laughs> and uh, that causes a fight to break out. They start bullying. Um, Joff, they make him dance like a bear. A bear, yeah. What's going on? <laughs> I um, thought he was going to skate on fire because that table looked like there was fire going up on it. There definitely was fire on that table. I absolutely <clears throat> wondered why there was a fire on that table too. <laughs> no one seemed concerned about it. There was just, of course, that's where the stick of fire lives. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, like he's dancing, they're bullying him. He ends up. As Johns comes into the inn, he stops them bullying him, um, sees the thief, sees Ravel, and cuts his face in a very swishy, swishy manoeuvre as well. Well, it looked like he like stabbed him in the eye. And it's, yeah, yeah, it did. Like, what was like, quite <laughs> brutal, there's no sound effect, really. It was, And I was like, well, that's probably how it would be like in real life. You wouldn't hear like a... Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. It's like that uh, story you, of, like, have you ever seen the making of um, uh, Return of the King? And... Um, uh, What's his name? Uh, Christopher Lee. His character gets stabbed in the back. Oh, and, yeah. And yeah. Uh, Peter Jackson goes, oh, when he gets stabbed in the back, I want you to do like a, ah! Oh, I know. And yeah. then he's like, Peter, I have actually stabbed a man in the back. <laughs> <laughs> and a man does not go, ah! They literally go, oh! <laughs> so that's what he did. Anyway. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Because he was in the you war. You don't get that caliber actor anymore. Because he fought in World War Two, didn't he? I think he, he could did. have been fought in World War One. To be honest, he's that old. Probably he probably did both of them. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a funny thing watching these films in the fifties, and you're like, all these people probably fought in the war. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, and like, I had to look up um, Gunnar Bergman, Gunnar Burgesson, the guy playing Johns. I had to look him up because I wanted to know if that scar on his head was makeup or real. Because so I was like, that looks like it could be Bjorn Strand like, or something like that. Yeah. It's not real, um, but I was just like, it's a possibility with these people. They've just fought through like World War Two and now pretend, now doing make believe. <laughs> um, where are we? Uh, he cuts his face, ever see him again, and we kind of cut then to the uh, Antonius is having his chess game by some cliffs, and the wife of the actor and her child are just kind of having a picnic, basically. And this is like the moment in the film where there's actually quiet and like contentment. 
where um, Antonio's kind of gets invited over to get to the inn and they share strawberries and they share milk and they talk <laughs> about kind of love and they talk about kind of nice things. And then um, I'm going to remember eventually... this moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He shared milk and strawberries. He goes, I'll, I'll, I'll carry this memory between my hands as if it was a bowl filled with a brim with fresh milk. It would be an adequate sign. To be well, you know, you know, like he said that, like when he first plays a game, he plays the game with. Um, I don't know if it's at this bit or earlier on when he's playing the chess game with death that he says he wants to have a noble act before he dies. Yeah, he wants him to, f- and he wants him to fill his soul. Because he, he obviously offers like... these guys to come back to his like castle or wherever he lives. Yeah. Does he think come that that's his noble goal to to keep them away from the play? Because obviously his noble goal is later on that he. he I think know. at this point he's thinking if he can harness, he can keep some of the love he's seeing between this family with him. Then maybe that'll be enough for him to face like the afterlife. He'll he'll be happy to not know if God exists or not because he know that there is real love in the world. I think is what he's saying now. But why? Um, the one thing I was struggling with though, obviously, I can I can say okay, I understand. Well, I don't really understand why death's after him because we don't actually know what's wrong with him or whatever. I mean, like I said, sure. the film's not really interested in that. But um, no, why? Whenever people latch on to him or who come with him, why are they then targeted by death? Is it just yeah, because they're with point. him? I don't know. I, I think... I guess it's to see different people's perspective towards death and how they all react to it, I guess, as well. But Yeah, and I think in some ways it's like... Because, because like, um, Block was selfish... Um, and decided to prolong his death. It meant that it took in others into that world, right? Okay. And death's kind of punishing him that for that a little bit as well. Okay. Like, if you've got death targeting you, like death will follow you, and and you know and that means it will spread out to the people you interact with a little bit, a little bit like being sick. If you do, you know, mm. um, with with the plague elements of it. I thought that I think that's what it was. Anyway, that was my kind of reading of it as you say I mean, the film's not that interested in that it's you just have to kind of accept it almost don't you like it's like i told you off mike i literally finished watching this about 30 minutes before we started and i think it's <laughs> one of those films you kind of need to digest a little bit longer i think before you yeah start i have talking. been sitting with it for a couple of days um I, I can't yeah so they have like this happy little bit um the the blacksmith's there um is the black no the blacksmith isn't there yet? It's actually it's just the actors because he comes back with the bracelet for his wife. It's just John's and it's the mute girl and it's um Antonius as well. And he invites mm-hmm. them all back to his castle, like you said. Yeah, so they're setting up the next morning, aren't they? And at that point, the the drunk um, block <laughs> comes out of the pub and says that he wants to come for a walk for the forest. <laughs> Um, I love this bit when he's like, "Give me a hug, little brother," and he's just trying to chase John's around, and John won't have any of it. Like, oh, because that's it. Because just before they, it's a wonderful scene where John's and the blacksmith make friends in the pub, and um, the blacksmith is crying about his lost love, and John's very cynical um, about kind of what love yeah, is. He, and... he doesn't really have much time for women. Like I think earlier on, he talks about that he has a wife, but he's like, "I hope she's dead already, and not there when <laughs> I get home." And it's like, mm, "You're a nice guy." <laughs> He's kind of like, love isn't worth being upset about. I think he says love is the blackest of all plagues. Or what something. does he say? It's... That love is 
another word for lust or something like that. And yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the only pleasure for love would be to die from it, I think, or something is one of his phrases. Uh, John is a happy fella. But he is, he's kind of, he's just so cynical, and he, but he's kind of like fun. John has mm. like a weird energy in this film that I really Yeah, because he sings songs it. and stuff like that. And yeah. Like that, though, when later on he's like, the Joff is like, I've got a song that I'll sing, and his, his wife's like, no, don't do it. Don't, don't play it in front of them. Don't. Just make them angry or something like that. And then <laughs> yeah, John's is like, I have a song about death. I don't think you want to hear it, though. Awesome. <laughs> and then. Um, so later on, they're kind of marching through the woods together. The the um, uh, the blacksmith joined them as well, and they managed to bump into the other actor with the blacksmith's wife, uh, Scat and Lisa, in the forest. Um, the blacksmith is so happy that he gets the hammer. <laughs> and they have this wonderful scene when they're arguing uh, and trying to outwit each other. And the blacksmith is very very dumb, and the actor is very like witty. But John's is in the background helping the blacksmith getting some witty lines. He keeps like feeding him more lines. Yeah, but he's and, also um, doing commentary to everyone else. He's like, ah, oh, like the actor's got him now or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's won him over or something like that. There's one bit when he says, like, he calls him a perfumed dung heap. And, um, <laughs> and the blacksmith says that. And then the blacksmith on his own says, I'll blow you, I'll blow you down to act as hell with one great fart. And, uh, <laughs> And John's just John's congratulates him for thinking of that on his own. <laughs> He's like, "Oh, well done. That's a good one." Like, and then he kind of turns to the other people and he goes, "You know, when we were crusading in the southern lands, there were these giant beasts that looked like humans, but they were apes." And everyone else goes, "Yeah." And he goes, "Well, I'm just just mentioning it. Just <laughs> just just a comment." Like, and I was like, "I just uh, I liked John's in this. I thought he was really funny. Like, he was a good good inclusion to the gang." Um, Lisa basically says, "Look, look, I won't go with Scat. Like, um, I'll go back to you, Plock." And, well, she um, che- like she literally runs around the whole of the the wagon the to set. get back to him. <laughs> like she could have just walked, like two walked steps, one step no, forward. It's like no, I'm going three sixty back to where I was before, or one eighty, whatever. <laughs> and like totally, he's like murder him, kill him, kill him. And, and he's um, like, I can't kill him because I kind of like him now. Yeah, I get along now. Actually, I quite like him. Uh, so Scat does this like fake suicide, um, which he thinks he's like he just pretends to stab a dagger into his chest, and the blacksmith knife. totally buys it. And the group does everyone move else? On and... Does everyone else buy it, or do they know that he's f- faking? I don't, because they say like an actor's death or something like that, don't they? Or yeah, I think it's only the blacksmith that buys it. I think because right. um, he does say to himself, "Look, I'll just have a rest here for the night, and then in the morning I'll catch up with the others." Like. So he climbs a tree to have a rest. Because I assumed but... once that once that happened, that the blacksmith and his wife would go off, and he'd go back with them. That's what I thought. Was yeah. Happen, but... but the black apparently the blacksmith and his wife are now part of this gang going yeah. to this castle for some reason. But like you said, <laughs> okay. though, you have that a great moment though, though when he <laughs> he just comes along with the <laughs> the sword. That's like out of a cartoon, though, isn't it? Where someone's a patrol and like like they've got the axe underneath and they're like. And the guy up in the tree is like, oh, someone's doing some woodwork. Where's that coming <laughs> yeah, from? Oh, He's trying to look tree. for them. Like, Yeah. Oh, wait, it's my tree. Like, it's very, very Looney Tunes. Like, um, they camp for the night. The other guys camp for night after uh, the tree comes down. And uh, they... Um, oh, well, I guess you see the woman being executed first before well, the they camp help. the night. They, they help yeah. get it across the water and then... 
I think um, John's is more willing to kind of kill everyone to save the girl, aren't they? But I think, uh, but Block is more kind of willing to let it happen. Well, he tries to speak to her first, doesn't he? About yeah, he tries to talk to her about saying she's like he's yeah. behind you, turn around or something. He goes, I see nothing. Um, but John's gives her some herbs like that he says will numb the pain. Yeah. yeah. Um, or I, I think it's. I think it's like a nightshade or something. Like that. I think it's meant to actually kill her. I think, I think that's what it is. Like he saves her suffering, which seems to be his kind of role in this. Is that he's he doesn't believe in like human suffering really, even though he doesn't really believe in life. Either. He's a proper like nihilist really. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, um, at this point they they camp, but before they manage to go off for the night, the thief comes back, um, and the mute girl wants to he's now got the plague um apparently it's quite quick moving but um john stops the servant girl giving him any water he says it's completely useless there's no point giving him water he won't actually nourish him it won't make him feel better like and and they watch ravel just die alone basically i mean i know it's because it's black and white and it's it's in the 50s but like the way this was shot did feel a lot like uh rashomon again yeah, I mean, it did, just, just didn't the it? Yeah. Shot just, but again, that's probably just a result of it being in the woods and it's black and white. Mm. But um, in a clearing in the woods, sure. Yeah, like uh, this is kind of when the narrative turns. This is this is now action in terms of this film gets them to action really, because um, they they camp for the night and Antonio sits down once again to have his game of chess with death. And uh, throughout his journey, like like Block has kind of seen like enough. He's seen this humanity, seen this love. He's seen that he's got something he can care about. That preserving like that love in this world is good enough to fill his soul. Really, the fact that um, he's got a wife, you thought that would have been enough, but apparently not. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird thing. I want. That's why I kind of wanted to watch it again because he talks about his wife at another point in a kind of like I don't think he talks her almost like she's dead. Well, Which it, is, I was surprised was, when she was alive. I assume he's that young when they got together and the, when he left for the Crusades that it's almost like he's not been, like he doesn't really remember her, I guess, or kind of has a very... Yeah, maybe he's been away for a decade or something. Or, yeah. Yeah, it was definitely was something that up with that, which I, will, I thought was going to be more of a plot point later, but it wasn't really. Um, but yeah, he's he looks over behind Death and he sees his family of Joth, his wife and the son. And... Um, he realizes that he kind of wants to preserve them, preserve this kind of save them almost really. Because mm. Death basically saying, if they if you if they stick with you, I'm going to kill everyone. You know, I'm going to kill everyone around you. Is who, who's going to go? So he um he in losing the game, uh, Block knocks over the chess pieces to distract Death, um, giving that family time to leave and escape. And also, escape the worth, clutches of death. It's worth pointing out as well. Joth, Joth, no, he sees death, doesn't he? He sees death, yeah, because yeah. he's got this second sight or whatever. Oh, sorry, just took some more. Um, and uh, death kind of asks Block at that point if you've achieved any meaningful deed, and um, he says yes. Watching, he? yeah, watching the family escape behind him, like Block just kind of replies that, yeah, I have, yeah, like. Um, at that point, we're really right at the last of it. Then the actor family is sheltering in the woods, um, avoiding death. You know, hiding from death, hiding from the storm. 
And meanwhile, Antonius returns to the castle and is reunited with his wife. And the remaining party members all kind of sit around to share a supper. Their supper is interrupted by Death's arrival. Um, and one by one, the party all introduce themselves to Death. Like they're showing him like respect, um, yeah, showing him like girl says her, her first words in the film. Yeah, yeah, it is finished. Yeah, it's finished. She looks really like, and like their reaction to death is all to do with their character. Like the the blacksmith and his wife have this humanity to them. They realize they're losing something by being part of this. Like the mute girl almost looks happy that she, like well, her life can end. Well, she's been through shit, so she's probably yeah. just happy about it. John's um, kind of looks at the camera almost. Yeah, John's is the most interesting for me because you get Block who's like praying and Block that's like terrified, the most human-like reaction. He's well, terrified yeah, he's of like, death yeah, still. He's like how most people are when they're deaf. They don't really want to face it, do they? they well, yeah. Kind of, you know, they want to make sure there's something else for them when they they leave. When they go. Um, but John's won't like he won't make an idol out of death he he doesn't look at death yeah. when he introduces himself he looks at the camera he um he doesn't he's it's like he's prepared for this hell his whole life you know he's been through shit he's been for the crusades he's been for he's 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 always been ready for death and he doesn't fear it he doesn't pray to god he doesn't do anything it's like just that he just thing for him to deal with i guess and, yeah and it's almost like he won't um he won't show death any of that kind of he won't show him that he's scared of him. He won't make an idol of him. He won't pray to him or anything like that. He would just like treat him as like another aspect of his life, really. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the last we see of them. Um, in the morning, you see Joff and his family. They they've managed to kind of hide from this violent storm overnight. They've they've all managed to kind of live. And as they're packing up to leave again, um, in the far distant hills, Joff says that he can see. The knight and his companions all being led away over the hillside in a in a dance of death, which down, I think down, that's really <laughs> which like in the dance macabre, and which I think was really important because it's like it, it's almost joyous. It's like it's like at the end of it, it's like the film shows you that death is also positive. It's not just like a thing to fear. It's not just an end. It's it can be a positive thing that you. Well, you know what you know what the blue oyster cult always said. (laughs) (laughs) Don't fear the reaper. And that's the end of that film. Yeah, I think. What did you think of it then? How did you? That was a lot to say. Was. Uh, I really liked it. Honestly, like, I think. I'm I'm up there with like four and a half five stars. I think it's just it was surprising to me what the film was. I was really surprised that it was so watchable and narrative driven and funny. I was really surprised. I'm I was really happy that like it was a film so complicated and playing with the kind of ideas and it really wore it on its heart. You know, it wasn't hiding behind anything. It was really going to try and tackle what it was talking mm. about and more than anything else I just I did find it really watchable it was really watchable really which and you know adding it all together with the performances all the performances are good but especially Max on Sidal uh, the the look of it just the, just the way each scene looks like a like you know I've said it before like a wood carving sometimes just mm. like this or, or like a stage show or something they're very like 
very just like emblematic kind of little sets and and lighting and shots and stuff like that. I, it's a remarkable feat to do this on the budget in thirty five days. Um, and um, yeah, I can. It wasn't a disappointment to me. I, I know I can see why this is always up there as like best film ever made kind of stuff. You know, it's a huge thing, and I can see why it always gets on that list. And I can, I can, I can understand that and agree with that. Really, like I would. So I think if I'd been able to see this at a cinema, it would have been an even better experience. Really. Because it's yeah. not a slow film, it's quite fast-paced, and I think I would have loved being able to sit in a dark theatre and watch this, really. Yourself? Pretty much just to echo exactly what you said. I mean, yeah, it looked great, uh, great performances, and just like like I said, like it's a film that you think is going to be a bit of challenging to watch, and while it is, it's also yeah. not a, it's not punishment to watch. It's, it's actually really enjoyable at the same yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Which I was not I expecting... I was kind of expecting, no, not wasn't. that I thought it was going to be a chore, but like I, th- I thought it was going to be more like homework, kind of yes. watching. Yeah. But it wasn't, and I was really pleasantly surprised by that. I was expecting to be confused by it more than mm. I was. I mean, we spoke about some of the confusion in the narrative, especially about it, but it wasn't a film that like I finished and I just was like, what the fuck was that? Like, it wasn't. You know, I didn't need to Google the ending to find out what happened or something. Mm. It's, well, it's, it's, I think it's, the only confusing part is, is like, what do they die of? But like, as we said, it's, it's not really a film that's bothered. Like yeah, that. yeah. Like, that's not, that's and not I think, what the film's about. It's not about what they die of. No, it's about what the journey is. It's a bit, yeah. you know, why are they all bothering to go to the castle and stuff like that? It's just a bit, it doesn't care, you know? It doesn't care about that. Like, um... It just I did like that set though when they get to the castle. I did like the outside, the exterior of that set. It looked pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. It almost I like the little like shots a, of the drawbridge. It looked like a stone well. wall that they've carved a building inside of. It was weird. Okay. <laughs> it was weird. I mean, I've, we haven't really talked about like um, Ing, Ing, Ingmar Bergman as like a director. He's like thousand. I, I can't remember. He's got sixty odd films or something like that. Yeah, he's, um, he's got he, a filmography. This was like his 13th film, or 17th film, I think. Was it 17th? I know Wild Strawberries come out the same year as this, which is like, I know like three films from him, and one of them is Wild Strawberries, one of them is this, and the other one is um, Persona, is the only right. other one I know by him. Um, but uh, I, I'd be ch- I'll be checking more out, I'm going to, I think. I'm interested to watch more of his, definitely. It's, yeah. it's someone I I'm I'm would like to know what else he did really. Yeah, same. Same. I mean, it's worth noting as well. Gunnar Fischer was the um, the cinematographer. He lived to okay. a ripe, ripe old age of a hundred. Wow. Uh, and then music was um, Eric Nord- Nordgren. Nordgren yeah. wasn't a, it wasn't full of music and stuff in this film. No, it but it had some ambient stuff and uh, yeah, like. It's only a bit, but yeah. yeah I think he. I think. I think like you know, like Akira Kurosawa and uh, John Ford. That like I think um, Bergman used a lot of the same people. So these two guys worked on a lot of their other. Mm. So yeah, this guy did the music for Wild Strawberries as well. Oh, cool. So uh, what we talked about next week then? I don't know where we say this. Oh. Oh, next week, next week, next week is good. 
Next week we are returning to a fan favourite. <laughs> it's not a fan favourite. It's an adjustable tracking favourite, a best friend of ours, Mr. Orson Welles. Hey. And it's uh, we're dealing with Touch of Evil. Oh, is it Touch He's of Evil? Noir. Yeah. And uh, I believe our friend Natalie will be joining us as well. Sweet. So that would be really good. But yeah, Touch of Evil next week. Orson Welles is back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever you listen to us on, be that uh, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, all that bollocks. Um, uh, please uh, uh, follow us on Twitter. We are at Adjust Your Track with a Y on your. And yeah, don't forget, if the pitch is bad, always adjust your track.